You're listening to Country Life with Keith Fahey on Galway Bay FM. Good evening, I'm Keith Fahey and welcome to this week's edition of Country Life. On the show this week, I'll be talking to David Meredith from Chagas in relation to farm safety. We'll be talking to Todd Scott from Virginia Tech University and we'll be talking to Aidan Murray in relation to the new CBV index for the beef animals. Um, Plus, we will have all the latest from the Mart reports and any farming news from across the country, county. Um, And to get in contact with the show, you can email us as always on countrylife at galwaybayfm.ie. So that's countrylife at galwaybayfm.ie. So if you have any questions or queries or any topics you'd like uh, covered on maybe next week's show, don't hesitate to give us an email on countrylife at galwaybayfm.ie. So look, we'll just start there with a few Mart reports. So the Montpellier Mart cattle sale on the 16th of November, there was a similar uh, number of on offer to the previous week with an improved uh, trade all round. There was a brisk trade for uh, store cattle and whalings with a complete clearance in each case. So just a few examples of, uh, of cattle sold in Montpellier Mart. Uh, some store heifers, a Charlie Cross 630 kilo heifer sold for 16.50 or 2.62 a kilo. A limousine Cross 620 kilo heifer sold for 14.80. Um, and another limousine cross sold uh, 550 kilo, sold for 1380 or 251 a kilo. Then onto some store bullocks, four Aberdeen Angus cross bullocks averaging 586 kilos, sold for 1730 or 295 a kilo. A limousine cross 585 kilo, bull- uh, kilo bullock sold for 1530, that equates to 262 a kilo. Then just some whaling heifers, a limousine cross whaling heifer at weighing 410 sold for 1100. Uh, 268 a kilo and another limousine cross weighing 320 sold for 800 or 2 euro and 50 cent a kilo then onto some bull whalings a limousine cross uh, 300 kilo bull whaling sold for 950 or 317 a kilo uh, one charlie 240 kilo sold for 800 or that's 333 a kilo and uh, then onto Chumart, so some sample cow prices from Chumart in the, mo- in the recent sale uh, included a 785 kilo limousine cross cow sold for 1940 or 247 a kilo, a 795 kilo limousine cross cow mid 1910 or 240 a kilo, uh, a 770 kilo Aberdeen Angus cross cow uh, sold for 1860 or 242 a kilo. Then some sample heifer prices include a pair of 435 kilo limousine cross heifers. Uh, weighing uh, or 435 kilo limousine cross sold for 1270 or that's 292 a kilo a 525 kilo Charlie cross heifer made 1480 or 282 a kilo then some sample bullock prices include four Charlie cross 557 kilos sold for 1620 or 291 a kilo a 435 kilo limousine cross made 1480 or 336 a kilo a 705 kilo limousine cross made 1900 or 270 a kilo. There was a smaller number of whaling, whalings that were on offer with many holding off for next Monday's uh, final evening whaling sale. Some sample whaling heifer prices include 300 kilo Charlie Cross made 950 or 317 a kilo. A 270 kilo um, Charlie Cross um, made 800 or 296 a kilo. Then onto some whaling bull prices. So the whaling bulls, a pair of 317 kilo limousine cross sold for 870 or 274 a kilo. A pair of 300 kilo Charlie cross sold for 930 or 310 a kilo. A 360 kilo limousine cross um, bull whaling sold for 1030 or that's 286 a kilo. 
Um, and next Monday, the 28th of November, we'll see the general sale at 11am and the final evening uh, weanling sale. Uh, the weanlings will be sold during the day from the 5th of December onwards. So an entries inquiries to 093-24353. And then just a couple of um, uh, prices from the Lock Raymart as well. So the sheep sale and improved trade for lambs in stores um, and lambs also came up a little in price. Colios remain the same with some sample prices including a 30 se- lambs at 37 kilos sold for one. 42 kilos sold at 120 44 kilos sold at 127 and then a number is beginning to fall um, but trade remains strong with some nice uh, quality heifers uh, selling with some sample prices of heifers including 270 kilos sold for 840 Shirley Cross 280 kilos sold for 830 uh, then there's some good quality cattle uh, are getting scarce and have risen in price. Uh, plainer, lighter stores have come back a little. Some sample prices of Bullocks, Hereford Cross, 402 kilos, sold for 810. Limousine Cross, 460, sold for 990. Um, then some on, on to some of the other prices called cows. A Parthenay's Cross Cow, 595 kilos, sold for 1180. A Limousine Cross, weighing 710, sold for 1485. A Limousine Cross uh, Cold Cows, weighing 740 kilos, sold for 1490. And an Aberdeen Angus uh, weighing 815 kilos sold for 1930. A Charlie Cross weighing 840 kilos sold for 2100. So look, that's the, some of the MART reports from around Galway. Um, and as we said, if you have any uh, queries or questions, don't uh, hesitate to email us on countrylife at galwaybayfm.ie. So first up on Country Life this evening, we're delighted to have Dr. David Meredith. So Dr. David Meredith works with Chagas, um, the Chagas Be Safe uh, project. So uh, David, you're very welcome to Country Life. Uh, you've done a, a lot of work in relation to farm safety, farm health and safety, and a new uh, recent survey as well. So I suppose, firstly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your role is in Chagas? Well, thanks very much, Keith, for having me on. Um, and in terms of my role in Chagas, I focus mainly on health and safety research. And I lead a number of projects. Uh, so the largest of them would be the Be Safe project, although we're about to announce a new EU-wide project that I'll be leading for the next four years as well. Um, and that work, well, the, the work that I'm currently doing in Chagas covers a variety of different areas. Uh, so on the safety side, uh, looking at the general safety challenges that farmers are faced with and how we can support farmers to adopt safer practices. And on the health side, uh, trying to understand um, the, the current health of farmers in Ireland and, again, how we can support them to adopt healthier lifestyles. And the other area on that health side is looking at farmer well-being. So the whole aspect of stress um, that farmers face and how they can can manage that better. Okay. And just in relation to the Be Safe program, can you tell us um, a little bit about that and maybe when it was developed and what areas you're covering on in relation to the, the Be Safe and, and the, the recent survey uh, you developed and uh, how it was uh, how it came about, I suppose, David? Very good. Um, okay, so the Be Safe project is a, a four-year project, and we're in year three now. Um, and it's funded by the Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine. And the the project involves colleagues uh, in Chagask, uh, but also in University College Dublin and in University of Galway. And as a team, we've been working on on the the issue of farm safety in general for the past number of years and looking at a number of particular topics. So uh, some of the key topics are uh, 
thinking thinking and finding out more about how farmers behave in relation to uh, safety challenges and using that knowledge to then develop uh, support programs, could be training, education or awareness raising tools to uh, support and encourage farmers to adopt safer practices. So that's the the purpose of the Be Safe project. Um, the, the work that we'll be presenting at our conference tomorrow in Ashtown uh, is focused very much on understanding farmers' attitudes and intentions and behaviours with regard to farm safety. And that type of work is uh, carried out uh, in, uh, across a whole wide variety of areas. Uh, so consumers are often asked, you know, what are their attitudes towards something? Or, you know, when political polls are, are conducted, people are asked about their attitudes to political parties or leaders or something like that. But we noticed from our own research and from other research on farm safety that when we applied standard attitudinal questionnaires or surveys, we tended to get very optimistic responses. And we captured this in the idea that I'll be safe for tomorrow. That idea that when you ask something about a safety behavior and they tend to tend to say well okay today i'm not being so safe but tomorrow i definitely will be and we wanted to try and overcome that optimistic bias is what it's called um, in terms of the future in terms of that everything will be better in the future and to get a much better real world sense of the challenges that farmers faced and what was shaping those challenges for farmers so we worked with a whole variety of people, including farmers, advisors, health and, space, health and safety specialists, and other researchers, to develop this uh, survey. And then we implemented it and collected uh, almost 400 surveys from farmers, large and small, from all types of enterprise backgrounds, um, and got a, a, a great response and great diversity uh, of responses there. And what came out of it was that uh, about 60%, and this is roughly about 60% of farmers said that they engaged in unsafe behaviours, so in unsafe practices. And they were aware of that. But what was really interesting for us is that when we asked about, well, why uh, were they engaging in in these types of unsafe practices? We had expected people would say, well, listen, it's because I'm tight on time and I have so much to do, or I've got, um, there's a lot of financial pressure on and I can't afford to invest in safety equipment or facilities or something like that. But when we analyzed the data, what came back was quite surprising. And it was the influence of other farmers on their behavior. And the way we, we got to that is we asked in the questionnaire, um, what the farmers thought good farmers did when they were faced with these safety challenges. And in a lot of instances, our respondents said that they thought good farmers behaved unsafely. And this tells us that they're strongly influenced by a, a culture uh, as of unsafety. Uh, and that culture is... Um, a barrier to farmers engaging in safer practices. 
Because if they think that good farmers are those that just get on with the job, they don't worry about the safety, then that's what they'll do too. And this represents a really big challenge for us to improve safety. Because we know that farmers are aware of a lot of the risks that they face. But we also know that farmers think that it won't happen to them, which is natural. We all tend to operate in the same way, regardless of whether it's going about our job or getting in the car and driving down to the shops or to pick up the kids from school or whatever it happens to be. So that particular perspective of you know, thinking it won't happen to me is natural and to be expected. But the key point uh, for us in all of this is the very strong influence that other farmers or good farmers have in shaping the behaviour of farmers in general. And that represents a big challenge for us to try and change. Yeah, it's quite surprising, actually, uh, David, you know, when you mentioned that, you know, I would have thought the exact same um, thought process as yourself. You know, it's not, the you know, the the answer to the survey or the results of the survey that I would have been expecting either, you know. And just as it said there in the, in the as part of the survey, roughly 26% of farmers can be considered to practice safe farming. I suppose what constitutes uh, practicing safe farming or what um, maybe ways are these people farming than others or how, what constitutes, we'll say, the practice of safe farming? So the way we presented the, the, the questions in this particular survey, we, we set out real-life scenarios. Um, and we worked, as I said, with a variety of people to develop these scenarios. And they're really short. You know, we're, we're only talking about a couple of sentences here. But an example would be that um, there's something wrong with the tractor, we'll say, and the ignition isn't working. And, you know, to get the tractor going, they roll started. So that's the, you know, there's a scenario around that. And and then it's a question of saying, well, okay, you know, do you get it fixed? And, and we get into the whole financial side, you know, can you afford to get it fixed and this sort of thing. Um, so that's one example of a a safety behavior where something happens and you know people recognize it as being something of a safety issue and go and do something about it either they fix it themselves if they can or they take it to a mechanic if they can't but we had similar types of scenarios with regard to livestock with regard to machinery uh, and a whole host of other areas as well so we were looking across a variety of different types of safety issues. And in in part, these were initially informed by our understanding of the type of incidents in which farmers are dying on farms in Ireland. So we took a look at that in the first instance. And going back to that issue around uh, road starting tractors, a number of farmers have been killed as a consequence of you know, road starting tractors and been and either been run over or um, other accidents happening around the tractor at that time. So that's why we picked out that issue around ignitions and handbrakes um, within the survey. But equally, we have scenarios in there around um, getting into a pen with livestock, uh, particularly after calving. Uh, and as I said, there's a variety of others. 
So taken collectively, there's a set of safe behaviours in terms of saying, you know, okay, I would approach that particular scenario in a particular way uh, that are safer than other ways. And when we kind of add all the scores up together, we find that there is about 23% of all farmers who completed the survey could be classified as being safe. Now, what's really interesting about that group is that it, it's fairly clear that this isn't something they're born with, okay? And there might be a predisposition to farming in a particular way, but it's not something they're born with. A lot of those people had experienced a near miss or an accident or knew of somebody who had a near miss or accident in the recent past. And that strongly shapes their behavior around being safety. So what we see there is that either the direct experience of having a, an accident at work or an incident at work uh, impacts on how they go about doing their job. So that, there's that element also tells us that this is part of the solution in terms of trying to get more adoption of safer behaviours. And the solution is in terms of farmers sharing more of their own experiences of what happens, what are the consequences uh, of having an accident. And we're in the process of designing uh, ways to encourage that and to facilitate that. Okay, and as you mentioned there, uh, David, you know, machinery and livestock, you know, they're always the two main areas where accidents and deaths occur, unfortunately. You know, what are the practical steps uh, that maybe can be taken to reduce accidents in these two main danger areas? Well, in terms of, um, we say, talking specifically now about work that has been undertaken and led by colleagues in the University of Galway in the Department of Psychology, uh, what we've done there is to bring together farmers. Uh, and these are focused on a mixed group, so both young and old older farmers. And bringing them together and using a really simple tool uh, to demonstrate two things. One are the blind spots around a tractor. And this is very simply done. I mean, what you can do is uh, get a broom handle um, and turn it upside down so that the, the brush itself is, is the person's head. And you get someone and you sit up in the tractor and they, they wave when they can no longer see the broom head as you move around the tractor. And you, you mark the ground around and then the person gets out of the tractor and they're actually able to see the blind spot around the tractor. And for larger tractors, the, that blind spot area can be very large. Um, so that's the first part of it. And the second element then is we introduce speed into the scenario because, you know, a tractor sitting parked up with the handbrake on tends to be fairly safe. It's when it's moving that we get the accidents. And the the question that we put to farmers is how far do they think the tractor is going to travel in a certain uh, space of time if it's doing maybe five or 10 kilometers an hour. And we mark out the ground around that. And we also mark out the stopping distance. And the whole purpose of that is to raise awareness of the, the issues around tractor safety 
and the need to be aware of everything that's going on around the tractor when you're driving it. But the way we're, we're approaching it is in having a raise, raised awareness of the farmers who have participated in this uh, pilot training program. We ask them to go home and to do the same thing with their own family members. And then we're currently in the process of following up with them to find out how they got on, what did they find easy, where do they think we can improve on the resources that we provide to them and the training that we provide. So hopefully now in the next couple of months, we'll have results coming back out of that. So that's a very practical uh, approach to demonstrating the issues around blind spots and why these are issues when we get into, you know, tractors moving around uh, farmyards in particular where they they can be in enclosed spaces and it can be very close to people as well. In terms of the livestock side of things, this is an area that we're continuing to work on and we've a, a lot of work planned for the new year. Uh, and this is really uh, focused on, on a couple of key areas but in the first instance it's about uh, that understanding the the livestock that you have and particularly when you're buying in livestock so obviously most farmers will know their livestock incredibly well and they'll know the ones that they keep an eye on and they'll know the fairly docile ones but the reality of course is that uh, any cow can turn on you and any bull can turn on you as well so there's a set of practices and that kind of you'd almost say listen regardless of the scenario you should be doing the following and you know there's the aspect of do you use a vehicle when out inspecting animals in a field and do you have a a safe route out of a a particular area so if you're working in a shed with animals is there a way to prevent yourself getting caught between an animal and it could be a gate or a wall or whatever it happens to be and and are there, are there facilities that could be put in place, uh, so calving gates, for example, that can do exactly that in terms of provide a safe space for uh, the farmer to work in? Um, so these are all areas that we're, we're currently looking into uh, and working with people in Grange, uh, Targus Grange, uh, and also working with farm advisors around this. Very good, very good. So uh, Dr. David Meredith there, uh, Chagas and uh, Be Safe Project Manager, uh, thanks very much for coming on Country Life. I think you've given a fantastic uh, detailed review of the, the current sur- or the survey that recently took place um, and well done on all the work you're doing on farm safety and farm health and safety, which is obviously a massively important area uh, in, in Irish agriculture. So thanks very much for coming on Country Life. So next up on Country Life, we're delighted to have Aidan Murray with us. So Aidan Murray is a beef specialist uh, working with Chagas. Um, so um, Aidan, I suppose you did an article recently on the commercial beef value, the CBV. I suppose what is uh, the CBV in relation to farmers and why should they use it? Well, I suppose uh, it's a new index uh, that they've created really to look at the individual sort of beef and characteristics of an animal. So, for example, if um, uh, either a dairy-bred animal or a suckler-bred animal has a sire recorded, it will actually focus in on a number of the sort of terminal traits in terms of carcass and and overall value of that animal when it's actually slaughtered, um, which, you know, will take a lot of the guesswork out of, particularly for people that would be buying young drop calves from a a dairy herd or even, uh, you know, you get values for uh, weanlands and that, 
at sale time and it's something that ICBF have recently put up on some of the mark boards so that you can get an assess. So really it's it, it, it looks into the sort of the terminal traits of both the sire but also on, on, on the dam side so you're getting a better overall picture uh, of, of what you're buying if, if you can look at the CBV and the range uh, for example, if you had a, a Frisian uh, a Frisian male calf out of a dairy cow, you could get a value of maybe minus fifty. Whereas if you had a a, a male calf out of a, a well-bred suckler cow, that same animal could have um, a CBV value of three hundred euro. Uh, just showing the difference in potential uh, value of those animals when it comes to uh, when it comes to sla- slaughter time. And what is the CBV uh, value made up of, uh, Aidan? Well, as I said, it, it concentrates on the on the terminal traits uh, with that with that uh, that animal. So it's looking at things like carcass weight, um, carcass conformation, uh, carcass fat, uh, docility, uh, and feed intake. So basically, it's looking for animals that are more feed efficient, but will deliver in terms of carcass weight uh, and and carcass conformation. So those type of animals that have better conformation, good feed intake values uh, in terms of feed efficiency uh, and that they will actually score much higher than animals that are of poorer conformation, um, you know, uh, um, and, and lighter carcass widths. Uh, if you take, for example, well, even within the various breeds, you could get bulls uh, that have a plus 15 kilo carcass and then some of the heavier bulls might be plus 30, plus 40 kilos carcass. So, those animals will obviously score higher because at, at the end of the day they'll be worth more when it comes to when it comes to slaughter time. And uh, how do farmers, you know, breed animals with a, a higher CBV? Does half it come from the cow and half it from the bull, or what way does it work that way? Yeah, well, that's that's the beauty of it. Particularly for somebody that's looking to buy, um, uh, say, dairy calves, uh, you're lo- generally going in at a few weeks old, and you're looking at all these calves, and if you uh, like. Uh, and if you don't really know, uh, you oftentimes won't see the mother or the dam. Um, you'll have an idea, okay, of the breed of the bull. But really, the CBV value will look at the carcass traits uh, 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 of, of the bull uh, and also, uh, also the, the, the cow. So you're getting an overall view of, you know, there's a big difference, for example, perhaps between a beef animal that has come out of um, uh, a British Friesian type cow as opposed to a beef animal where it's coming out of a, a Jersey cross, uh, for example. And equally, there's a big difference between um, uh, an, a, a, an animal coming from a dam that is uh, very well suckler bred. So there's quite a range across the board there. So it will take, it will take a, 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 all, all of that into consideration. And just in relation to whalings there, um, in, you know, the latter cattle are in sheds already and they will be in the next couple of weeks. Grass is running out. Uh, farmers are weaning uh, weanlings as well at the minute. You know what should farmers be looking out for at the moment? Well, I suppose the first thing is to make sure that they were well dosed coming into the shed, and if not, make sure they are dosed. Uh, it was a very mild autumn. There was a good growth onto the back uh, back end of the year there, and cattle were out for a long time. And one of the things is that they've been continually picking up parasites uh, and that lungworm, for example, and stomachworm. So. You know, if you can dose them, uh, particularly if they're coughing, maybe uh, when you're putting them in, ideally they should have been dosed maybe a week or two out from housing. But if you're still coughing, you might have to dose now. Get them cleared out. Get them cleared out of parasites. Uh, and that, treat them for lice. Uh, and that, um, maybe shave their backs, if uh, take the clip along their back. 
and had them treat them for lice to try and stop a build up there. So have them as clean parasite wise as you can. And then obviously, you know, it's been mild and muggy um, and that, you know, making sure the ventilation is pretty good in the shade. You know, if it is a very muggy day, maybe leave the doors open to let the air circulate. You don't want a lot of stale air, particularly windlands that have maybe not long wind and be stressed. And I suppose the other area is the actual feeding. You know, we're looking to, to put on just over half a kilo a day over the course of the winter time. And really the amount of concentrate you feed will depend on your silage quality. Very, very good quality silage. You know, um, um, 72 plus DMD, which will be very leafy, cut it maybe six weeks or so uh, 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 after, after uh, rested and cut after six weeks. You know, that type of uh, feed for the normal weanland, um, you're probably looking about going in with a kilo, kilo and a half of concentrate. Whereas if you're talking about uh, a silage that's very average in terms of quality, maybe around 65, 67 DMD, you're probably talking near two, two and a half kilos of concentrate. But the thing about the concentrate, what we've seen over time and, and from looking at it on farm is those young calves, you know, they use concentrate very efficiently uh, and that, and it's sort of, it's more advantageous. You know, if you're saying, right, well, I'm going to give them a kilo over the winter time for the entire winter, give a kilo and a half at the start of the winter. Then you can cut them back, say, in after Christmas uh, to about a kilo a day. Uh, and then maybe in the run-up to going out, you could cut them back to half a kilo. So on average, you've given them a kilo, but you're better to front-load the meal uh, after they go in uh, initially. It's a more energy-dense ration. It gives them time to adapt to silages and a higher forage uh, content because a lot of those suckler calves in particular will have, you know, you know that for the bulk of the year, they've been getting uh, sucking the, the cow and getting the bulk of their nutrition from the milk. And it's only in the last, a few months really that grass has played a bigger part so they're still growing and you know concentrate is deer but it's it's at a very you'd be feeding it at a very efficient stage of that of that animal's life when they're under a year old that's when they're most efficient when it comes to concentrate use and just in relation to soil sampling as well Aidan you know it's, it might be a great time to do some soil sampling at the moment to identify maybe poor performing paddocks that may be low in lime, P or K. We've seen a massive uh, increase in the amount of lime uh, being used in the last year or two, but we've also seen that soil fertility um, trends are, you know, there's a lot of P and K indexes going down from maybe index three to index two or four to three. You know, a lot of farmers have cut back on fertilizer due to prices and that. I suppose, what's your advice for farmers in the next couple of weeks in maybe identifying poor poor uh, performing paddocks? Well, certainly, well, if you get an opportunity now that the paddocks that they won't have received fertilizer since uh, late, no later than September in a lot of dry stock farms, maybe earlier than that, uh, certainly opportunity to, to soil sample. The lime thing is hugely important and for most dry stock people should be the starting point. Uh, get your pH right uh, because it will improve nitrogen efficiency, phosphate efficiency and that overall. So it's, it's a cheaper way of making better use out of any fertilizer that you do put out. And the other thing is, there's a lot of talk, you know, about uh, lower fertilizer usage and, and using uh, more clovers and, um, and mixed species swards and stuff like that. The reality of it is, if your soil pH and your nutrient status in terms of P and K status is not good, you won't keep the likes of clovers in the sward long term, and you could be wasting money. So get your fertility, uh, get your uh, fertility right first, uh, and then consider these things because they're being pushed 
uh, and they're and they are you know from a from a climate change point of view something that we're all looking very very closely at but the starting point for any farmer is before they go down the route of any of those is to make sure that their uh, ph is right and their p and k status is because those cro- crops are quite demanding they like high ph they like good p and they like good k values and just in relation to red clover silage there, could you tell us a little bit about that? It's a topic that we um we, we would like to cover maybe. Just in briefly, I suppose, what is red clover silage and maybe, you know, how can it benefit certain farmers uh, in relation to silage nutrition? Yeah, well, look, it's, it's uh, obviously the advantage, see, of, of red clover silage is that you can grow high amounts of dry matter uh, with very little fertilizer use and a lot of people that are, you know, originally a lot of it was done on organic farms because you're dealing with a crop that potentially would be higher in protein than grass silage, but you're also dealing with a, a crop that can fix nitrogen very efficiently and fix it um, faster than, uh, than, say, white clover. So it, it'll actually start working a lot earlier. Um, very good yields. You're talking typically on good land, three or four cuts uh, in, the, in the year. Um, and the one thing that you do need with it is you know, because it's a red clover and would have a high buffering capacity, it needs to be well wilted uh, and that before it goes in, because if it wasn't well wilted, uh, it would be more difficult to, to preserve. Uh, and that, so, it's you know, there's uh, the likes of Grange uh, have put in red clovers and the idea is that other than regenerating uh, a recycling slurry on the swards, they, they, they'll use very little, if any, chemical nitrogen at all. So it's a very good way of, of potentially growing a silage crop without a lot of chemical fertilizer if you've got the slurry in that to grow it. But it does come with, it's, it's not that suitable to grazing if, it, if the crown of the plant's damaged, it would tend to die out. Uh, so, you know, you can't graze it very severely. And the dilemma for some people at this time of the year is with the very mild autumn, uh, they would be in a position to potentially take a fourth cut because there's a, a lot of very good regrowth on red silage swords or red clover swords uh, at the minute. But it, the dry matters are so low that it would be very, very difficult uh, to, to unsail. And some people are looking at uh, if they're not able to graze it off, they're actually sort of mulching it back in and using it as a sort of a green fertilizer. So, look, it's, it's got a lot of potential. You do need the high soil uh, fertility and pH that we talked about earlier. Um, and uh, and it certainly could be very very good quality silage uh, with potentially higher protein values than than your grass silage, but it does take a bit of management, uh, and and you do have to make sure that that you increase the dry matter of it or dry it out well before you actually try and 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 and, and conserve it. Ed Murray, beef specialist with Chagas, thanks very much for coming on Country Life. So we're delighted to have um, a, a, an agricultural agent, uh, an extension officer, Todd Scott from Virginia Tech University. Um, Todd, I, I had the pleasure of going over to Virginia and um, meeting a lot of farmers with you um, a couple of years ago and you came over to Ireland and we did an exchange. Um, it was great to see all the different types of farming uh, in Virginia um, from a 2,400 uh, cow dairy herd to smaller cow herds to I seen how peanuts were grown. It was really interesting. So we're delighted to have you on Country Life here in Galway Bay FM. So I suppose if you could give us a little about yourself, Todd, uh, what you do um, and the different types of farming systems maybe that you deal with in Virginia. Hey, uh, nice to see you, Keith. Uh, talk to you. 
I am the Agriculture Extension Agent here in Campbell County, Virginia. That is right in the heart of Virginia, right in the center of the state. And I guess if you look at land mass, Virginia and Ireland probably have about the same amount of land mass as far as area. Uh, and I'm right in the middle, and it's really a, uh, a diverse area. We've got uh, everything from crops in this area. We've got a lot of soybeans that get planted in the spring. Uh, we've got a little bit of corn, and then... Uh, We've got a lot of a lot of a lot of farmers will kind of double crop and plant some winter wheat and rye or barley, some of those type of things. And then uh, we've also got a lot of cattle here in Virginia, so uh, in in my county area. So Virginia across the board on the eastern side of Virginia, we've got a lot of peanuts, we've got cotton, a lot of vegetables. As you come back towards the middle, it turns into more crops: soybeans, corn, cattle. And then once you get uh, a little west of me, it's mostly livestock pasture. Uh, they get a little, we get a little more mountainous uh, and a lot less cropland over there. Still a little bit of corn grown in that area. So it's uh, Virginia's really diverse. My county's uh, quite a bit diverse. Uh, we've got about 1,100 farmers here in Campbell County. Uh, one of the biggest things that concerns me with agriculture, and I'm sure it's probably similar in Ireland and in your area, is uh, of those 1,100 farmers, about 60% of them are over the age of 65. Uh, I'm getting close to 50 myself, and I'm getting tired uh, a lot on just my my family farm kind of thing. So it's uh, that concerns me a lot. Uh, our younger generation, including my daughter, uh, they're going into computers and things like that. I guess that's where the money's at compared to being the farm. But in the future, I'm a little bit worried that uh, we're just we just don't seem to have that young input coming in and wanting to work with farms. Uh, so here in Campbell, I have about 1,100 farmers altogether. Uh, of those, we only have probably a handful of uh, full-time farmers, uh, about 30 to maybe at a max of 50 full-time farmers in the county. So what we have is a lot of what I would consider gentlemen farmers here in Campbell County. So, uh, and I would probably be uh, in that in that area. Uh, our farms here in the county are uh, we've got several large farms that are. 2,000 acres and larger, and then, uh, but the average farmer around here, we're seeing a lot more of the, more like the farm homesteading, what we call homesteading farms of 30 acres to 100 acres, and that's kind of where I classify my farm is. I've, I raise purebred Hereford cattle, and I uh, do it for breeding stock and seed stock, and I own 30 acres, and I rent around 175 acres. Um, and of that, I have about 130 acres of pasture and about 45 acres of hay. So, uh, and I'm running somewhere between 30 and 35 cows, and uh, that leaves us, you know, that leaves me about three to three and a half acres per cows. So, uh, uh, one of the big things as an ag agent that, uh, and and I, I noticed when I was toured uh, Ireland with 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 you and Nora that uh, you guys are doing a lot of pasture measuring and things like that. And we're doing something here called Graze 300, where we're trying to get our farmers to graze 300 days a year. Uh, input cost is really some of the things that's, uh, that's really hurting us. Uh, I'm sure you guys fertilize our prices there. It's probably tripled. Our, ours has tripled. Our hay production, we've been having a lot of weather issues here Um we were this spring. We were in really rough drought. Uh, we didn't get much. You know, we're 
we are definitely a four season area. We have a spring, uh, usually a fairly cool spring, um, and then our summers get hot. So here in uh, Campbell County, we'll have uh, July and August are usually 80 and above. Uh, you know, low, we stay somewhere. We'll run about five or ten days near 100 type of thing. So we get really hot, and then right now we're getting back to really cool again. We're having 50-degree uh, days and 20-degree nights right now, and that'll be the weather. So, uh, you know, you guys have that uh, perennial ryegrass. Here in Campbell County, we're farming. Mostly our cattle are eating fescue grass, and that is a cool-season grass. It grows really well in the spring, kind of goes dormant in the summer. Uh, it also produces a, a endophyte, like a toxin, uh, that stunts the growth of the cows. They really slow down the calves growing. Uh, they just don't grow. Our cattle don't gain much weight through July and August. And then September it cools down, and that grass kind of that grass kind of gets a little bit better for them, and they start gaining weight again in September, October. So that Graze 300, we're trying to lower our input cost is our biggest thing. Um, we we found that uh, you know that that uh, it just seems like that. The, what we can do is if we're grazing longer, not you know we can uh, we just cut those costs down quite a bit from uh, you know feeding hay. It's costing us probably around three dollars a day ahead uh, to pasture them. We're you know we're below a dollar type of thing. So uh, we're trying to cut our costs right now. Uh, minerals have gone through the roof. Uh, we're you know we're a bag of 50 pound bag of minerals was costing us around 12 dollars and now it's around 23 24 dollars a bag of minerals. Uh, diesel fuel here, I'm sure fuel has uh, for you guys is, 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 is I think everywhere it's gone up. But we went from uh, diesel fuel under two dollars a gallon to now we're over five dollars a gallon with our diesel fuel. And diesel fuel is what makes the world go round for our farmers, our tractors, our trucks, and things like that here. So. Uh, yeah, so it's it's, it's, quite, it's quite similar, Todd. Yeah, tough. you know, um, you know, we were discussing earlier on the in the program, you know, how to reduce costs and all that. But you know, as you said, it's the same here. You know, with fertilizers hitting a thousand euro a ton, depending on the type of fertilizer, diesel has gone up. So I think you know we're farming in different countries, but all the principles and the price increases um, remain something similar. So um, just actually something there you might talk a little bit, a bit about is you brought me onto a peanut farm. Um, can you tell me a little bit, a bit about how peanuts are grown? A lot of our listeners wouldn't be familiar with it. Well, to be honest with you, Keith, as far as, you know, my area, I'm more of a livestock. And uh, so I don't know a ton about the peanut farms. That's, that's about an hour and a half, two hours east of here. Uh, that's why I took you down, let you meet all those experts down there. But you know, the peanut farms, uh, they're they're basically uh, they're kind of similar to like a soybean crop. The peanuts are actually underground, kind of growing in the ground. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's a special, you know, it's, it's special. It takes a soil. They're growing in a little sandier soil down that way than what we have. We have a really heavy clay soil here in our area, so uh, it takes a little specialized equipment. Uh, peanuts. The, right now, the price of peanuts seems to be doing well. The farmers are doing well. Uh, our area, we get a lot of their peanut hay after they do the crop. They'll bell up a lot of that, uh, the, you know, the byproduct, which is basically the plant. They'll bell that up and then uh, ship it our way to feed cattle with. Uh, some of the problems with it, it's a little dusty, a little dirty, but uh, it's high in protein. Right now, we've been, in, yeah, it's very high in protein, and we're in a 
Uh, we've been in a, because of our spring drought, our first cutting of hay was about 50%. Um, and a little bit of that's caused by fertilizer. We're not putting us down as much fertilizer because of high prices. You know, everybody's cutting back. That means our yields, but then we get, had a major drought. I know on my farm, uh, I, I got lucky and picked up about 30 extra acres of hay ground this last year. So, and I cut that for hay. I cut everything one time. Our second cutting was, was a late second cutting, probably August, September. And we got uh, about as much second cutting as we did first cutting. And usually we only get about half as much. So we got a little bit of rain in July and August, which is abnormal. We had a little wetter summer. So we got a little bit of a kind of a fall, late second cutting. Um, sometimes we can get three cuttings here, but that's, that's on a great, everything has to be perfect on those type of years. Very so, good, uh, very good, very good. But yeah, but, but uh, yeah, it's, it, Virginia's definitely, and that's one thing with me, like I, I'm, I don't know a ton about uh, peanuts when it comes to my background. We kind of got like specialists. I work with Virginia State University, which is on, you know, it's, it's on uh, near Petersburg. So it's about two and a half hours east of me. And then Virginia Tech's about two hours west of me. Okay. So I'm kind of right in the middle and we work with both universities and We've got specialists that on each side that that work with farmers and producers. So. Very good. Um, I'm afraid, Todd, we're we're running out of time, but I'm I'm delighted you came on to Country Life. It was great to talk to you again. We might have you on soon again to talk maybe about more about your Hereford cattle, maybe in another couple of weeks. Um, so that's it for this week's Country Life. We hope you enjoy the show. And if there are any queries about this week's topics or if you'd like a topic covered on the show, please don't hesitate to email us at countrylife at galwaybfm.ie and I'll get back to you. So until next week and next Tuesday evening at 7pm, have a lovely evening. And next up is Melodies with Valerie Hughes, followed by The Night Fly with Donald Mahan.